0: morning and welcome to the Church of Blue Ridge. My name is Ted, one of the pastors here. And I just want to let you guys know how thankful I am for our staff and volunteers because we gave them one less hour to get ready this morning. And I think they've done a great job with the weather. We said, hey, come at 9 instead of 8. And so we're real appreciative for uh, these individuals who make this service possible each and every week. So thank you uh, to all of you. Now, for me, one of the things that's very challenging is when I go to a really good smokehouse where the meat's really smoked. You know, you see wood and smoke and all that, not, not uh, artificial. It's what to choose. Which type of meat should I get? And so there's nothing greater for me than the sampler platter, right? When you get a little bit of everything and you enjoy all the great smoked meat. And what, uh, I illustrate that because one of the things that Luke does for us in these first two missionary journeys in Acts, he gives us a sample, three samples really, of how Paul would preach to three different groups of people Throughout the Asian and European continents, and so we saw back in chapter 13, actually Robert preached that sermon, what an excerpt of a sermon would be for the synagogue, for the Jews and the Godfears. And then in chapter 14, we saw a little piece of a, a sermon to the illiterate pagan Gentiles. We saw that in Lystra. And today we get the excerpt, if you will, the sermon example that Paul would use when preaching to the philosophers, to the intellectual types. And Luke saves this, of course, for Athens, as we'll see. Athens was the capital of Greek culture and intellectualism. And so we are coming in a way to the Mecca of Greek life, uh, the capital, the great city that once was where all of Greek culture flowed out of. And that's what we'll be looking at uh, today. Now, you'll see the title of the sermon. You'll see the, uh, the slot up there. It's called Gospel Incarnate, Gospel Incarnate. And I'll I'll show you what I mean. Let's look at this great passage from John's gospel uh, from the prologue. We think of this, of course, Christmas time. Look what John writes. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I want us to start here this morning because I want want us to be reminded of the greatest example of what we call contextualization, where we take the gospel and bring it into a culture in a way that the culture and the people in that culture will understand God's truth. And what did Jesus do? What did God do for us? But he came down, was wrapped in human flesh so that we could understand the truth of God. And as Jesus did this, he didn't diminish any truth. He didn't compromise who he was in his divine self. He took on the human flesh, that wrapper that would allow us to understand truth. And, and I say this because some people criticize Paul for what we're going to see today, how he uses a an uh, unknown God altar, a God who existed in the polytheistic uh, grouping of the Greek gods. He also will quote a, a stoic poet who's using a truth about Zeus. And he uses these as launch pads to bring the gospel to these people in their context so that, he, so that they could understand the truth of Jesus Christ. And so I want to make it clear at the outset that what Paul's doing here is exactly what our Savior did taking the uncompromising truth, and he himself not compromising it at all, but communicating it in a way the people in that specific culture will understand. You'll see the, uh, the big idea, the main idea of today's passage on the screen as we continue in Athens. While in Athens, Paul will masterfully proclaim the gospel message in the center of Greek culture without compromising the truth. And just as the passage that Robert read earlier, we must do the same. We must do the same. We'll talk more about that as we continue through. And before we pray, let's be reminded of where we are in this journey. You'll see the map. I meant to show this last week, and I forgot. So let's look at the map of the second missionary journey. And you can see we started back in Antioch, the the church that sent these men. Don't forget, all these great journeys are being sponsored by local churches. We can't think of Paul acting as a rogue missionary Uh, on his own. He is sent and sponsored by the church at Antioch. Even even Silas is from the church at Jerusalem. So we have two churches involved in this key mission. We see them go visit the churches in southern Galatia. Then they kind of are journeying through Asia, trying to figure out where God would have them go. And finally, on to Europe. We see the cities we've been in recently. And then last week, leaving Berea, making the two or 300-mile journey, depending on by water or by land, to Athens, and that's where we arrive today. So we're going to see the Gospel incarnate as we continue on this great journey in the Book of Acts. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that we could worship today. We we didn't know last night with the, the weather, people uh, casting some fear and doubt. But thank you that we were still able to come together corporately and worship as we have done and continue to do now as we hear from you. And, and that's what this is really about, Lord. We, we preach through the verses of Scripture because we want to hear what you have to say. Your words matter. Your words have the power. And so we ask now, Lord Jesus Christ, let your words speak to each of us where we are. You know where each person in this room is, those who are yours and those who are not yours. Take your word, plant water, grow those of us who are Christians, and save those who are who are not, as we continue in this great gospel mission in the book of Acts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, or use your electronic device. We're going to continue in this chapter and pick up in verse 16. And today's passage, uh, really it's two passages. This could have easily been two sermons, and that's not a warning. Don't worry, we'll get through it pretty quickly. But we see the Athenian scene first. Uh, We get a great description by Luke of the context that Paul's operating in, in this great city. And then we're going to see the Athenian speech, Paul's speech and his sermon, where we get to see him contextualize the gospel into this intellectual Greek philosophical culture. And so let's begin reading by reading today uh, this great passage, starting in verse 16. And we're going to read to verse 21 first as we get started. So starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy. Again, they're being sent, they're being summoned from Berea to join him. So, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Or hearing something new. Now I think it's safe to say, if you've been journeying with us through this, all the persecution and difficulties that Paul has encountered, if anyone deserved an Athenian vacation, it was Paul. Athens was the capital, as I said, of Greek culture and thought. Everyone growing up in this part of the world knew about Athens. Paul would have been brought up. And so as Paul's coming to this great city, he would have been coming as a tourist. We know he doesn't spend much time there. But Paul begins his time going around and checking out the sites. And believe it or not, in Paul's day, Athens was a tourist attraction. It was a place that tourists went. The the great temples were some of the wonders of the ancient world. Even back then, many flocked to this city uh, to see them. And uh, a couple couple notes here about Athens. Uh, One is that its golden age was actually about 400 years before this time. So the golden philosophical age has already come and gone. You may know the names of Plato and Socrates and, and Aristotle. These men were centuries ago, but yet their legacy lives on even to this day as Paul comes there as a Taurus, as one looking at all these great marvels and statues and temples. Now, as we uh, as we look, and you'll see the, the slide here, there's three questions that if we ask these questions that will help us to understand and get a clear picture of this scene. And I have to admit at the beginning that I'm leaning heavily on John Stott's commentary. I don't like to even come close to plagiarizing. I study certain uh, theologians each week because I like the fact they don't have outlines. That way I just learn what, what they're teaching, and I'm still digging and forming the outline myself. But John Stott surprised me this week and had a very apparent outline, and I couldn't get it out of my head. So hopefully I would have come up with these three questions as well. But we asked three things. What did Paul see in Athens? How did what he see make him feel, and then what did he do about it? Let me show you what I mean. So Paul comes in at the end of verse 16, says that he saw the city full of idols. So what did he see? He sees this Agora marketplace with all these porches running down each side, and statue after statue after statue of all of the Greek gods of the Parthenon, all of the Greek gods of this polytheistic culture temples here, temples there. And of course, the most dominating part of the landscape is the Acropolis, this hill in the middle of Athens where the Parthenon Temple uh, to Athena and and Zeus stood. In fact, you'll see a picture of what it looks like today, much like it did then. It just stood up on this great rock, the great temple. Some even said that you could see the tip of Athena's spear glimmering in the sun from 40 miles away. And then you see the ruins of the Agora market down below. So this great world-renowned marketplace was down at the bottom of the hill and somewhere in between was what we know as Mars Hill and that will come up later in the passage but he sees all of this this Jewish man who was raised from an infant up believing in the one true God and you can imagine how it made him feel and and Luke tells us that there at the beginning of verse 16 that his spirit was provoked now our English translations do not do justice in translating this word, very difficult to translate. But the Greek word there for provoked is a very strong feeling, very powerful emotion that moved in his inner soul, Uh, a mixture of anger and sadness over the state of the worship of idols in this area. Uh, Another example in history you might uh, be familiar with is Martin Luther. If you've seen any of the, the movies or depictions of that story, you'll know that a trip to Rome... And seeing the idolatry of the Roman Catholic Church, God used that as one of the catalysts for Luther to become the great reformer that he was. But here, back at, at Paul, uh, he, he's he's angry, he, he's he's deep in emotion. He he wants to do something about it. Now, recently, uh, myself and the rest of the staff were at a pastors' retreat, and they had a speaker come in. He's kind of a comedian, a funny guy, but he said some very unfortunate words near the end of his time. He said this. He said. And by the way he 's coming from mega church world, so us little podunk pastors were so glad to have him there and he said, "Now, if you really want to grow your churches, you guys need to stop preaching verse by verse and start telling stories. I felt at that moment like Paul, I think feels here deep emotional frustration, anger at hearing what I heard so that 's how Paul feels. I hope you can can sense that i 'm sure you have experienced that yourself and then the final thing that we need to see, and this is what I love Paul does something. About it. There's lots of times that, that we will see things we don't like that will, that will make us feel a certain way, but then we don't do anything about it. Look what Paul does. He doesn't, uh, basically, his vacation's over. He's done being a tourist and a sightseer. Verse 17 tells us he goes in, first of all, and he reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and the God fears. Well, that's what we've been seeing. So Luke's not going to tell us anymore about that. We've seen a sermon from that, we saw in Thessalonica some of that. But on Saturdays, on Sabbath days, he's going into the synagogue. But that's not enough. Look what he does too. He goes to the marketplace, this Agora Market, every day. So the other six days of the week that he can't go reason with the Jews, he's in the marketplace in this, this great area with all these porches and so many tourists and Athenians coming by, and he's preaching the gospel there as well, kind of in an open-air type setting. And that's incredible. He, I mean, I, I would be proud of myself if I went and preached somewhere Uh, evangelistically one day a week he's doing it seven days a week and while he's preaching there you can see some of the philosophers hear this the epicurean and the stoics now so much information on these guys i'm going to keep it very simple epicureans would be like agnostic secularists okay they they uh they they believe there there were gods they believed in the divine but they felt like those deities were far off that they really didn't have anything to do no no personal connection with humanity so they're they're Famous phrase was, if it feels right, do it. So their life was very indulgent. The Stoics, on the other hand, would be very similar to pantheists. So if you know anything about pantheism, uh, think Star Wars, you know, the force, this, the gods in everything, in nature. And the best way to, to get close with the divinities is let's uh, live in tune and in harmony with nature and don't allow pain to affect you that much or pleasure to tempt you that much. Kind of walk the, the Stoic path. That's words we still use today no emotion. So they come, they hear him, and look how they describe him, a babbler. Now that word in the Greek is incredibly interesting. It literally is seed picker or seed speaker. And what, they, what the image there is of a chicken or a bird that continually pecks at the ground. And what, it, what, they're, uh, what they're trying to illustrate there is somebody who would take scraps of information but really not have any original thought of their own and go and try to sound real smart with all these scraps they picked up from everywhere. And as I, if you look in the encyclopedia, this is the picture you might see for that type of person, a seed picker. Anyone that's seen Cheers, right? It's a little known fact that. So hopefully you've seen Cheers, otherwise that means nothing to you. But that's what they were describing Paul. That's what they mean by a babbler and how wrong they were. If anything, and in fact Luke's going to tell us in a minute, they were the babblers. And we, we, if you might remember, early in our study of Acts, we we said that, Paul probably had the equivalency of three PhD degrees. That's how intelligent he was. So he is definitely up for the challenge. So these men, uh, they, they kind of, uh, different responses. They're saying he's a preacher of foreign divinities. Look what it says. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So we know he's proclaiming the gospel of Christ. They, they call these strange things, new things. They didn't know what to think, but they invite him to the Areopagus. Okay, so... We've heard about the, uh, the synagogue. We've heard about the marketplace. Here's the third place he goes now. This is the council of those who are super smart in Athens, the, the Greek philosophers. And back in the day, there was a very famous group of this council was a very powerful and famous group of judges who would actually hold court on the Areopagus. That's Ares Hill. You may know it more as Mars Hill. Uh, there's a little bit of a confusion there because of the King James. Mars was the uh, Roman god of war, Ares, you've seen Wonder Woman re- recently, Ares was the Greek god of war. So it's really Ares Hill, which is, uh, the maps of the picture's not up there anymore, but it's kind of halfway in between the marketplace and where the Parthenon is, up on the, on the, the mountain there, the mountaintop. And so they would sit on this hill and decide cases, uh, Plato stood before them, Socrates Stood before them, but today in Paul's time, not today, but in Paul's time, a lot of their power has been stripped. So they're really an education commission, uh, an education commission that determines really what's proper for, let's say, social media. Okay, so imagine some of our social media platforms today censoring somebody because they don't like their politics or their worldview. That's kind of how this group functioned back then. So they're going to bring Paul, and we're going to see this sermon here in a moment. But before we do, look at verse 21. This is interesting because this is uh, Luke's narrative commentary on these people. He says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Luke is actually taking a shot at them right there. He's having a little fun with these people who are the real seed pickers, the real cliffs from Cheers, and really themselves are just gobble up and pick different bits of information and try to sound very smart. So he's now coming to talk to these individuals. So before we get to that speech, let's talk about application a little bit. And to do this, we're going to look at a few things here. And the first is this quote by John Stott. I love this quote because this is the question that this passage today answers. It's a question that we need to ask here. It says this, what should be the reaction? of a Christian who visits or lives in a city which may be aesthetically magnificent and culturally sophisticated, but morally decadent and spiritually dead. That's the question we must ask wherever God has us, whether we live there or visiting. And this passage today answers that by what we see Paul do. What we see Paul do, it challenges us. So that we, as we live here in Blue Ridge and the larger Greenville area, we need to go and learn our culture. We need to get our hands dirty and see the people, the the very different types of people that live even here in Blue Ridge, much less the larger Greenville area. And we need to allow what we see, the sin, the idolatry, to affect us in the deepest parts of our being. Robert reminded a, a, a small group leaders of this yesterday as he's training us. He said that the, the, the unchurched, the lost people, for the most part, they're not going to come in this room on Sunday morning. You need to go and find them. And it begins by understanding our culture. And is not Greenville one of the fastest-growing cities in the country? Are not people moving here from other parts of the country, even other nations, to live in this growing area? And many people love to go downtown see the waterfall and see the arts and see the restaurants and all the great culture we have in what used to be the buckle of the Bible Belt. And then finally, we need to do something about it. We need to take action with the information that we get, with the, how the Holy Spirit moves in us to tug at our heartstrings like he does Paul. And then you'll see this slide. We need to ask these questions. What is our synagogue? Who are the religiously lost and dead people in this area? And there's many, trust me. There's many who need to hear the gospel. We know that 60% of Blue Ridge is unchurched. But even of the 40% that are church, so many are spiritually dead. So many are lost. So many are trapped in man-centered versions of Christianity that they need to hear the gospel of truth. So who are the religious? What is our marketplace? Where are places, third spaces that we can go where there will be passerbyers and, and, and consumers like us who we can connect with and build relationships. And then what is our area opacus Where are the intellectuals? Of course, the university campuses. Furman would be a great place if we can get connected there, a place to go and talk to these people who think they're so smart and yet are nothing more than scrapmongers, picking bits of human information and thinking they actually know something. And one of the great ways that we're going to see this happen missional community groups we have our current small groups now we're getting ready to shift robert's leading us he's doing a great job of leading us to shift our small group model to more of a missional community where as small groups we're engaging the culture in third spaces and we're going to where they are so that we can connect with them this great truth and god can bring them into the body of christ so stay tuned more on that to come so we've seen the athenian scene now we're going to see the athenian speech this passage, if you go to seminary or Bible college, you will spend time on it. It is one of the classic examples, as I said, of contextualizing the gospel. I know that I've been in several classes where we study this great speech, this great sermon of Paul. Now, one thing to tell you real quickly, Paul was not arrested. Okay? He wasn't arrested here. He was taken to stand before this council. They no longer met on Mars Hill or Aries Hill. They actually met on the royal porch in the northwest corner of the marketplace of the Agora. So it was really close to where he was already preaching. So he's going now to stand in the midst of this education commission, these these would-be censors of, possible censors of what he is saying and speaking. So we're going to pick back up in verse 22 and continue reading a bit. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way... You are very religious. I'll pause there. That's the understatement of the year. Okay, He's trying to be nice, but I think he's also being a little sarcastic there. Again, this place is filled and littered and even submerged under statues and temples. Continuing, he says, "For As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. As we approach this passage, we could spend weeks talking about each of these incredible theological points. And I want to encourage you to do that. Unfortunately, we do not have the time for that this morning. But. I've gathered the five main things about this passage that it tells us about God. Now, here at the Church of Blue Ridge, we we use a great tool. Another thing Robert's leading us in, it's called the Seven Arrows. Uh, The the pastors at our sending church developed this. Matt Rogers and um, I can't think of his name. Someone yelled out. Professor, thank you. They have developed this great tool. And these seven arrows are questions that we should always be asking of the Bible to help us to understand what it's teaching. And so if we were to use one of those arrows and ask, ask this passage, what does it teach us about God? It's these five things. And these are the five biblical truths from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, that Paul is now taking wrapped in a way that these people would understand. If you came to understand what the Stoics and the Epicureans really believed, these passages, these truths, are taking a shot at the foundation of their faulty worldview. Now you'll notice as Paul's defending the gospel here, he's not, he's not using so many points of evidence, like how long was the ark, how many animals could fit on it, so on and so on. And we have to be careful as we defend the gospel, as we, as we uh, come before people like this to share truth with them, we have to be careful that we're not throwing pearls to the swine, that we're not putting God, the holy righteous judge, on the witness stand. And that's what happens with evidence, purely evidence-based apologetics. We can run the risk of doing that. Nonetheless, Paul is using truth, biblical evidence, but what he's doing points our attention to another type of apologetics: presuppositional. He's attacking the presuppositions that these philosophers hold dear. He's destroying their foundation with the truths of who God is. And you see each one of these: God is the creator of life and the sustainer of life, right there. You should be thinking Colossians 1:15. Through 20, these great truths of who this God is. And what Paul's trying to say to them is you cannot localize the one true God. You cannot domesticate the one true God. He has made everything. Not only that, He sustains all of life for all mankind. He needs nothing from us. And you're going to make a statue out of Him and put Him in a, in a building? You might remember back in the Acts 7 where Stephen was about to be killed, and he said this to the Pharisees who worshiped the temple. He said, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? This is who our God is. Not only that, he tells them that God is sovereign over the nations. It is God who is in control of the nations. He's in control of their physical boundaries as well as their longevity, how long each will last. And that's a little bit of a warning for us here in America. The top dog nation now, right? There is a day when we will be no more. Because that's what's happened throughout history. God is sovereign over the nations. He's also the father of mankind. And this is where we see that the, the philosophical quotes that Paul uses come to bear. And what he's trying to say here, as you can see in the passage, he's saying, this God is like us. What I mean by that is, are we idols? Are we statues? No, we're living, breathing creatures. We're, we're animated. Now, God is no creature, but he too, the one who has made us, also has to be animated. He also has to be alive. We don't make statues of him, dead statues, and put him in a room. He's the father of, of mankind. And yet, all these false gods everywhere in this city, you have made by your own hands. You're going to worship them, destroying the lies of the enemies. And you'll see there the quote. This is from Erastus. Erastus was a Stoic philosopher who actually lived and is from the area that Paul was from. He says, for we are indeed his offspring. And before that, you see this very popular philosophical quote. In him, we live, move, and have our being. And the point he's making, and this is the the point where I really want to come down back to us this morning, is this. God is not far off. He's near. We, because of our sin, are the ones who are far off. It's our sin that that makes us go from him. But he's here with us. Our God is the transcendent God. Yes, he is the great God, the creator, but he's also right here with us. And he's ready to save all who would turn from their sin and follow him. in Faith Faith in what Jesus Christ has done. And this is the great part of this this, uh, presentation, the fifth point. God will judge the world in righteousness. And so what is the call to man? Repent. Turn. Everyone who is not a follower of God today, not a follower of Jesus Christ in this room, because they're following something else. They're worshiping an idol of their own that has taken up residency in their heart and is controlling it. And the simple call of the gospel, come. Repent. Turn from that which you worship to Jesus Christ who has paid the price for all of your sin once and for all on the cross and then was raised by the Father through the power of the Spirit to life, paving the way for us to be with him forever. And you see it here in this passage. He he refers to the man who was appointed, this one Jesus Christ. And look what God did to give the world assurance. You'll see that in verse 31. This is God's proof, his proof. He's given us assurance that this man, this one, Jesus Christ, is his righteous tool, his righteous judge, because he raised him from the dead. Now, Luke gives us a summary, but you know, you know Paul was preaching the cross too. He preached the full gospel here. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that he came, that he died, that he was raised, and that he ascended to heaven. That gospel was preached. And look at the results. Verses 32. To 34. Three, three different results you see here. This should encourage us because we're going to get them all. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again on this subject. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him. Isn't that great? Three different results from the same gospel. Now God is the sovereign king of the results. We can't Help how people respond to the gospel. Our job is to preach. Our job is to go. Our job is to take this truth to all who God would put before our path. We we can't uh, be worried so much about the results. Now we can pray for the results, and we need to pray. But the reality is, when we preach the gospel, it's going to be mocked by some. It's going to it's going to pick some interest in the hearts of others who might say, "Hey, I like to hear more about this." But oh, praise God, it's going to bring some to faith in Jesus Christ. Every single time. Now, you you can ask a few people in this room who used to be on an evangelism team with me in downtown Greenville. First off, I was a scaredy cat every week. I had to, like, drum up the courage. And, man, when people reject the gospel, it is so hard not to take it personal. Because because you're just like, And then you don't want to share with anyone the rest of the night. You're down. But we have to, to prepare ourselves for that and not take it personal. Because we can't control how people are going to respond to this great message. This great truth. We even get to meet two of the people who were converted. Now, it doesn't seem like Paul may have had the, the success that he had in other towns. But nonetheless, we, we see two names and we're told others came to faith in Christ. So we should have believed, we should assume that a church was indeed started here in Athens. Now, look, what, look at the, some of the characteristics of these two people. First, Dionysus. He was an Areopagite. That means he was a member of that education commission, that council that sat on Mars Hill. or or part of the Martial Council. So one of those judges who would have judged Paul's uh, sermon, who was there to weigh in on what this strange man was teaching, he comes to faith in Christ. And then we get the name of a woman, Damaris. This continues Luke's theme throughout Macedonia and Achaia, that women were coming to faith in Christ. And uh, women typically wouldn't have been with the Mars Hill Council. I I think they were the ones working. That's the only thing I can figure. They were working and and making the money because the men would sit around uh, talking about all this new stuff. So she was probably a foreigner. She was probably a tourist who happened to be there and came to faith in Christ. And look at this passage here from another part of 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 1. And I love this passage. It talks about the reality of what the gospel will do as people hear it. For Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul didn't worry about the results he preached the gospel. He did not compromise on the truth. Yes, he packages it and contextualizes it in a way that these people understand, but God does the rest. Now, as we come back to application, as we as we answer the question that uh, John Stott asked us earlier, what are we now going to do about it? Because we have the same gospel. We're indwelt with the same Holy Spirit, the same tool, the local church is where we come together and function through. So what are we going to do about it? Well, Let me give you an extreme example of how we're not going to do it. And this happened back in Florida when I was first church planning, right out of seminary. And I met this man at the college. He had just come out of prison, and he was saved in prison. And so we began a discipleship relationship. One day he shows up for our little meeting, and he says, you know, before uh, I went to prison, I spent a lot of time in strip clubs. And I believe God's telling me now to go back to the strip clubs and share the gospel. And I said, that's the stupidest idea. You cannot do that. That's not what we're going to do That's not contextualization, as Paul would have us to believe here. Dumbest thing. So I say that to let you know that in this, we have to be careful. There are some places we should not go and try to contextualize the gospel. But he meant well. He really did. He meant well. But nonetheless, we have to ask these questions. And this next passage, or this next quote by John Stott is somewhat convicting. Symbolically, I'm going to turn around and read it with you because I need it as much as you do. Why is it that in spite of the great needs and opportunities of our day, the church slumbers peacefully on, and that so many Christians are deaf and dumb, deaf to Christ's commission, and tongue-tied in testimony? We need to take action. It's convicting, and it's convicting for me. I need to do a better job as one of your pastors. But the cool thing is, we're not alone. We have each other. That's why I'm excited about the missional community changes we're making. We're going to be going as groups to share the gospel. But whether it be individual, as families, and as a church, we need to make strides into the lives of those who don't know Christ, and we need to do it soon. Here's a few things. We're almost done. Bear with me. Here's a few things that I've gathered together. Uh, just as a summary of what we've looked at today. Again, this is really the beginning of a conversation. This is even just an intro to this incredible passage. I encourage you to go back and study it some more on your own. But we need to allow our hearts to be broken. We need to become so familiar. We need to come out of our little safety bubbles and our buildings and, and our routines and rub up and see what this lost world is doing. And, and see the horrors that are around us and the idolatry and allow our hearts to be broken. We also need to find our third spaces. We need to find our third spaces. And we're going to be doing that as missional community groups, but I encourage you even uh, in, in the course of maybe what business you do. Maybe you work from home. Maybe you have freedom in your schedule and you can go anywhere. Find a third space to do your work. Uh, today, with the Internet and computers, we can work from any area. In fact, if you come into the Taylor Starbucks, you'll see me there uh, most days of the week. That's my third space. I do all my, most of my sermon prep there, and I have met so many people. It's like cheers almost, yeah, another cheers reference. Everybody knows your name. It's great. It's an incredible uh, way for me. Now, granted, God's gifted me recently where noise doesn't distract me. That's a new thing, and I praise God for it. But we need to find our third spaces as individuals, as families, and we will be doing this as a church as well. Also, we need to don't assume a common foundation. Yes, this was the buckle of the Bible belt, but it is no more. Don't assume people even have the foundation of a biblical worldview. Next, pray for, and this is where I struggle. You can help me here. Pray for creative ways to communicate the gospel incarnationally, or, or if you want to think contextualization. Pray for creativity. Come and share ideas you might have with the members of your small group, with Robert and I. I'm asking you right now. Creativity is something I lack at times, so we need to pray for that. And then finally, to kind of go all the way back to the passage Robert read earlier in the service, we need to learn to be all things to all people, all could talk to so many different types of people in so many settings. And with that, I want us to look at one last quote, and then we'll be done. This is from Daryl Bach. One cannot help admiring Paul's ability to speak with equal facility to religious people in the synagogue, to the casual passersby in the city square, and the highly sophisticated philosophers both in the agora and when they met in the council. And here's something I say all the time. We, if you're a believer in Christ, you have no less Holy Spirit than Paul did. And yet we even have more of a written canon than he did. We have everything we need to go and share Christ with any type of lost person. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come back up and get ready to continue our time in worship and song. Two invitations, as always, first and foremost, to those of you who are saved. This is an invitation to continue worshiping in song based on what God has taught us. My prayer is that your heart has been tenderized and open to the truth that he revealed to us today. So let's let's belt it out now in song for what God has so faithfully taught us in his word. But second, I know in a group this size, there are some who do not know Jesus Christ, who are lost. And I want to give you kind of a picture of the invitation that Christ gave to the men who would follow him. He said to the fishermen, Peter, John, James, Andrew, follow me. It was that simple. And they dropped their nets, their livelihood, and followed him. Now, they weren't doing anything sinful. They were earning a living. But nonetheless, they followed, simply as that. But let's look at Matthew, one who was a sinner in his occupation, a tax collector, one of the worst kinds of people in Israel in that day. And he said, follow me. And he walked away from the sin and that which held his heart captive and followed Christ. And that is the invitation for you today. You don't have to know theology. You don't have to have a seminary degree. Just follow Christ. And if that's you today, I am going to be standing in the back, and I want to talk to you at some point this morning. If it doesn't happen, call me this week. Call Robert. That is our priority conversation. It's all about the gospel. Come um, and share with us what God's doing in your life. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for this incredible sermon, this incredibly complex passage, which I hope I've done justice with this morning. But I know you have taught and spoken to us this morning, because it's always about what you do. You're the only one that can change the human heart. Whether a Christian growing up in Christ and being sanctified, or whether a lost person going from death to spiritual life. Father, have your way with us this morning. Do the work that only you can do. And let us not leave this place the same as we came in. Change us, Lord God, that we can glorify you, that we can take the truth. And for our church here, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, help me, to leave our comfort zones, to get away from our buildings and our programs and our calendar. And let us, Lord, uh, as groups, as families, as individuals, have creativity in how we can engage this lost culture. And take a cue from Paul's example, and even from yours, when you entered time in the person. Jesus Christ, Lord, teach us how to contextualize your truth without compromise and to the lost people who are all around us. We ask this in Christ's name.